Well, I was um, just a little boy back in August of 1970. And uh, Connie Packabush may remember August 3rd, 1970, because she and I share something, a common bond that uh, nobody else in the class shares, and that we were in the same hurricane in Corpus Christi back in uh, 1970, Hurricane Celia. Of course, I was just a kid and don't remember uh, all the details of it, but uh, I remember that morning my dad answering the phone and a look of panic on his face, and he later told me that uh, my grandmother called and said, what are y'all still doing there? Haven't you been watching the weather? And turns out the uh, the hurricane was supposed to go in a different direction, and it changed direction and he- headed toward Corpus, and we thought it was just going to be a normal day. Turns out the hurricane was coming right at us. And we turned on the news, and the news basically said, if, uh, if you haven't left yet, don't leave, because you're going to get caught in it. It's too late. So we had to just stay. And uh, my dad called a friend, and the friend said, you know, basically get in the center of your house and, and, uh, and don't panic. And we were thinking, don't panic. You've got to be kidding. Here we are about to face a hurricane. And I don't remember a whole lot about that experience. I remember sitting in a hall in the hallway. I can still picture the hallway. All the doors are closed, and uh, my dad was playing guitar. And we ate animal crackers. Funny the things you remember. And it sounded literally like freight trains circling our house outside. It was amazingly scary. Well. We survived, obviously, and uh, when we got out the next day and looked at all the damage, it looked like a war zone. I don't know if you've ever been in a hurricane or have ever uh, seen the results of a hurricane firsthand, but I mean, the, uh, the damage was, was extensive. In fact, our house was one of the only houses in the neighborhood that didn't have its roof pulled off, but ours was just fine. Uh, my swing set was up in the trees, and uh, every fence in Corpus Christi had been blown down, blown flat. And so the backyards that we all had that uh, abutted each other were now one big backyard with just a mess to clean up. All the phone lines were down, all the power lines were down. I think the state issued uh, martial law because of the looting that uh, potentially was going to happen. No one was allowed to get out. The army came in to keep order. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal. So because we couldn't go anywhere, and because uh, there, weren't any, there wasn't any power, it was cooler in August to be outside than it was to be inside, because there wasn't any air conditioning. And because there wasn't any uh, phone lines, which was a, pretty much a downer, you couldn't call anybody and tell them that you were okay. So our extended family had a couple of days of uh, nail-biting time of waiting to hear from us. But uh, in the meantime, it was a very interesting uh, experience because no one could go to work. Everybody had to stay home, and everyone had to sit out outside. And so what we did was the neighborhood, every night somebody else opened up their deep freeze because the, the meat was about to ruin, and as soon as you open the freezer... It started to thaw, and we had a barbecue every night out of someone else's deep freeze. We just kind of took turns going around. 
my dad and our next door neighbor rebuilt the fence between us. And as soon as the fence was built, they shook hands. And my dad said, uh, well, I'll see you next hurricane. <laughs> you know, I've thought about what he said uh, in the years since that time. And I've thought about just that whole unusual experience, some of which I remember, but honestly, not a whole lot. Uh, and I've thought, you know, what, what is it that takes a crisis or a disaster that uh, causes us to bond together? You know, in, in 9-11, we had uh, some of the most uh, unified times of our country those of you who may remember uh, wars of our past, you can remember that, that war unified us, unifies us as a country and as a people. And when there are disasters and times of challenge, we come together and we find a unity that we didn't think existed beforehand. Strange, isn't it, that it takes often disaster or something tragic to get us to come together in unity. Well, let's look together at a psalm, Psalm 133, 133. So turn there, if you would, with me. And uh, we're going to look at a psalm that has at its theme, at its core, unity. Uh, it's one of the psalms of ascents. We've been looking at the psalms of ascents you know, over the last uh, few weeks of our Zoom times together. And the Psalms of Ascents, as we've said, were sort of, um, it was the hymn book of going up to Jerusalem several times a year. All the Hebrews would go into, uh, up to Jerusalem, and uh, while they were going, they would sing these songs. And they had themes that were recurring themes of, in their lives, simple things like family, like faith, like, like uh, a struggle with being in the world and longing to be uh, in the presence of God and with God and with God's people. It's sort of like when you go to a ball game. You know, you can sit by a total stranger, but when it's time to sing the star uh, of the national anthem, you know, we all stand up and we do the same thing and we can sing the same words and we have a connection that's there even though we're total strangers. It's that way with us in hymns that we sing, with Christmas carols that we sing, and it's that way with the Psalms of Ascents with the ancient Hebrews. They had a common heritage to celebrate, and they were, during particularly the Passover, they were celebrating their exodus or their redemption from slavery in Egypt. It was a wonderful time of remembering their history and God's grace. Well, this particular psalm, this Psalm 133, is a song of ascents, and notice that it says it's of David. The, uh, the songs of ascents, this one, is um, in all of these superscriptions that say a song of ascents. The superscription is that little part of, the, of a psalm that's right before it that sort of gives a, sometimes it'll give a historical parenthesis or a context as to why this psalm was written. Like Psalm 51 says that it was written during uh, the time of, of David's sin and his repentance. But this one, uh, it just says it's a song of ascents and that David wrote it. And it is in the Hebrew text. This is not an editor's insertion. So this is inspired scripture, these, uh, these superscriptions. 
Look at, uh, it's a very short psalm. You can see it's only three verses, but boy, it is loaded with implications uh, about unity. Look at verse 1 with me. David writes, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Uh, you, may not, you probably don't have the Jerusalem Bible in your lap. You probably have another translation, but I, I think the Jerusalem Bible has an interesting translation of verse 1. It says, How good and how delightful it is for all to live together like brothers. I have to smile when I read that because I think of uh, growing up, I had a brother. And if you grew up with a sibling, uh, you know that that's anything but unity. <laughs> the reality is living together like brothers is anything but good and pleasant. Think of Cain and Abel, the first brothers. I mean, we're only a few chapters into the Bible, and we see that uh, brotherly love is far from good and pleasant. Uh, Joseph and his brothers, David and his brothers, Jesus and his brothers. There isn't a lot of unity when you see siblings in the Scripture. Even Mary and Martha had a tiff. So, uh, we're not talking here simply about sibling unity, but about brothers, as the Hebrew term refers to a brother, not as uh, exclusively family, but exclusively a connection. That you have a connection not just in family, but primarily in faith. How good, David says it is, uh, when brothers dwell together in unity. So it's a, be- it's a better translation, as the New American, has, New American Standard has it here anyway, uh, for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's not to dwell together like brothers, but when brothers and or sisters, when Christians or believers, if you want to take a broad principle, when we dwell together in unity, David says that it is, first of all, good, which means that it's right. It's not wrong, it's right. And he says that it's pleasant, which means it's enjoyable when there's unity. That it, The Hebrew word here for brother, isn't, uh, it, it never speaks of all mankind as brothers. Rather, it, it, it has a reference to those who are uni- unified by something, whether it's um, faith or family or whatever it is. But notice that David also makes a difference here of not just dwelling together, but dwelling together in unity. And think about David's own life, because David is a great illustration of this, particularly in David's family. David had a number of sons by a number of wives, and you can only imagine the, uh, the infighting and the backbiting that existed. Uh, we only have to read the scripture to see that uh, there was hardly any peace in David's family, particularly after the Bathsheba incident. But the uh, Amnon, of course, uh, the whole story of Amnon and Tamar, and then Absalom, David's son, murdering his brother, Amnon, and then Absalom fleeing up to Gesher, which is uh, just northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And if you're familiar with the geography of, of Israel, you know that Jerusalem down in the south is quite a ways from the Sea of Galilee. So Absalom went a long way away to escape and to hide in seclusion from his dad. After some time went by, uh, David invited Absalom to come and live back at Jerusalem. 
And David had to be urged to do that by Joab, nonetheless. And when uh, Absalom came back, you remember that Absalom lived in Jerusalem, and for two years, Absalom lived in Jerusalem, where David lived, but they never spoke a word. Two years. Now, Jerusalem at the time of David was only 10 acres large. 10 acres. So imagine living 10 acres apart, and for two years, you never say a word. See, there's a big difference between dwelling together and dwelling together in unity. If you had a family like uh, David and Absalom, in which there wasn't unity or isn't unity, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a challenge. And this is why David packs so much here just in this very first verse. It is right and it is pleasant when we dwell together in unity. Well, David gives a couple illustrations now for what he's just said. Uh, A couple illustrations for this good and pleasant unity. And the first one is in verse 2. Look at that. He says, It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. Kind of an interesting picture, isn't it? David compares unity to oil that was prepared by use for, by the priest, particularly the high priest, Aaron. This precious oil that David refers to is literally the good oil. That's the, the Hebrew t- term there for precious is the same word as good used in verse 1. So it is just as unity is good, so this oil is good. It is precious. It's the same word, and so the connection is between unity and oil. So oil or unity is like this oil that that is poured on the head, and then it comes down on his beard, and then down on his robes, and not just his robes, but the edge of his robes. So it starts on his head, goes down to his beard, goes to his robes, and then to the edge of his robes. This is a lot of oil. This is a lot of oil. It was almost a wasteful amount. We're going to see uh, a couple of observations, actually three observations, and then we'll make two applications. The first observation we can make about unity is that unity is like abundant oil. How so? Because it blesses every part of us. Unity is like abundant oil. It blesses every part of us. Part of us. Where the head, it blesses the head, the beard, the robes, the body, even to the very ultimate uh, edge of, of our body. It's like a great deal of oil that God's blessing, uh, God blessed the high priest in this way. There's not a part of Aaron that wasn't affected by the oil. It's a nice picture. It blesses everybody involved. The second illustration David uses here is in verse 3. Look at that. He says, It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. So let's just pause right there. It's like the dew of Hermon uh, coming down on the mountains of Zion. Israel gets its rain, gets its water primarily from rain. It's not like Egypt that has the Nile River or a Mesopotamia that has a Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, Israel has nothing in regard to fresh water. 
even the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River come from rain. And so rain is the means by which God blessed his people and provided water for them in the land. He put them in a land that required faith. Uh, they had to rely on God if they were going to, uh, if they were going to live. Now, I've got a uh, couple pictures I want to show you here, so let me share my screen. All right, are you seeing my screen here? Dave Francis, nod if you are, because I'm looking at you. You can see it? Okay. So you can see my cursor. This is Mount Hermon in the far north. And you can see that it is uh, that it has snow on it. And it's got snow on it year-round, actually. So much so that uh, you can snow ski on it. Look at this Orthodox Jew snow skiing with red boots. I like, I like that. This is probably his instructor or something. But uh, there's snow. You could actually snow ski in Israel. Never thought about doing that? Go to Israel and, and snow skiing. It's beautiful. It's just the, the snow is all over. This area gets about 60 inches of rain a year. And as a result, when the snow melt begins, when the snow begins to melt, it creates the Jordan River, which creates the Sea of Galilee, which ultimately uh, continues on its way down to the Dead Sea. So here's the familiar map of Israel. Mount Hermon is up here in the north. You can see this little uh, dark spot here at the very, very top of the map, northern Israel, Mount Hermon. And the Jordan River starts from up here at the headwaters is right here, and it flows down this ravine into form the Sea of Galilee. And then it continues all the way down to the Dead Sea where it stops. Now, you can't really tell from this map the, uh, the topography of the land. You just have to imagine that this is a, uh, a really low spot or a rift, as it's called. So this topographical map gives you a little bit more of the sense of the topography. Once again, here up in the north, you can see the little white cap of Mount Hermon. And it immediately, the water immediately goes down into this rift valley. It's called the Jordan Rift Valley. This is the, one of the lowest spots on earth. In fact, by the time it gets down here to the Dead Sea, it is the lowest place on earth. And so the water from Mount Hermon flows straight down this uh, valley into the Dead Sea. The, the dew of Hermon only goes this direction. Jerusalem is up here in on the in the hills on the mountain it is nowhere near the the water that flows from mount hermon all this water flows south the jerusalem the, the water that jerusalem gets is from a spring and honestly nobody knows the source of that spring the gihon spring okay so that's significant to share with you because as we look back at our text look back at the text of verse 3 it says that unity is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. And we just saw that geographically, uh, that doesn't happen. The, the dew of Mount Hermon does not appear uh, at, at Zion or Jerusalem. There is no water from Mount Hermon that goes to Jerusalem. So that, that's why David says it is like the dew of Hermon. Imagine the dew of Hermon coming upon Mount Zion. It doesn't happen, but imagine 
that kind of blessing. Imagine the, Im- the immense amount of water that comes from Mount Hermon that forms the Sea of Galilee that, that flows into the Dead Sea. Imagine if that much blessing were to come to Jerusalem. This is the idea. So, the second observation, uh, the first observation was that unity is like abundant oil. It blesses every part of, it blesses every part of us. The second observation is that unity is like abundant water. It refreshes where we're dry. It refreshes where we're dry. It's uh, an important to remember that this was sung during the feasts. And there were two of the feasts that were sung during the dry months of, of uh, Israel's annual cycle of seasons. During, uh, during the time from May to October, it was, uh, it's the dry season. It's not the rainy season. And yet there was a couple of feasts that occurred during that time. And so when the Hebrews would go up to Jerusalem and they would sing this psalm, they would think about, boy, we, we could really use water. We could really use some rain. And when they would think about that, the dew of Hermon on dry Mount Zion, wow, what blessing it would be to have that much water in Jerusalem. So, like the oil, an abundance of water represented God's blessing, God's blessing of his people. When we dwell together in unity, David is saying, uh, it's like the blessing of a multitude of cool, refreshing streams that flow in places that desperately need it. And in a sense, there's a third illustration, or a third observation, you could say, and it's the rest of verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, It's like the dew of Hermon coming down on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. For there, meaning there in Zion, or there in Jerusalem. The, uh, from a Jewish perspective, during the time of Christ, we know for sure, when it says uh, life forever, see those last two words there? Maybe your text says eternal life, life forever. From a Jewish perspective in the time of Christ, they equated life forever or eternal life with the kingdom of God. And we know that because Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, equated the two. Remember, he told Nicodemus, he said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then a few verses later, Jesus said how to be born again or how to enter the kingdom of God. In that famous John 3.16 that we looked at several weeks ago, where Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus is equating entering the kingdom or seeing the kingdom with having eternal life. And if we can sort of superimpose that back on Psalm 133 in a grand biblical biblical theology of eternal life, we understand from the Holy Spirit's perspective that there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. It was in Jerusalem that the Lord provided that means of eternal life. And of course, we know that our Lord Jesus uh, would die uh, in Jerusalem or there just outside Jerusalem for our sins and then rise again. So the kingdom of God is the front door to eternity, and faith in Christ, of course, is, one, is how one's born again. 
You may be familiar with that uh, psalm. You don't need to turn there, but you probably know the psalm, 87, where it says that this one was born in Zion. Remember that old Wayne Watson song, this one was born in Zion? Well, it actually comes from Psalm 87, and it's the idea that uh, you may be born in another country, but when it comes time for God to gather the nations together, if you're a believer, it will be said of you that this one was born in Zion. So you may be born in uh, Lubbock, you may be born in uh, Sacramento, but when it comes time to enter the kingdom, it will be said, this one was born in Zion. And some believe, and I think they may be right, that this may be the, the psalm or the, the principle from which Jesus gets his idea of being born again. You were born here, but you're born again when it's said of you that you were born in Zion, that, that it is counted for you, that you have, it is as if, as if you've been born right here in Jerusalem. Um, there's a significant event that occurred in Jesus's day, and I want to share the screen one more time and just show you uh, the map once again. Okay, so here's the map, and right up here at Mount Hermon, there was a very significant event that occurred right at the foothills or the base of Mount Hermon at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is actually right at the bottom of Mount Hermon. And uh, Caesarea Philippi is where Jesus asked that question, where he said, who do people say that I am? And some say this, some say that, but then Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're exactly right. And let me also tell you that the Christ or the Messiah is going to suffer many things and be betrayed in Jerusalem and on the third day rise again. And of course, this was a devastating bit of news to the disciples because they didn't the the crucifixion didn't figure at all into their plans for the Messiah and to their own personal plans to be you to use the Messiah. And so Jesus said something to them that would have been a great encouragement after the fact, and that is, he said, "Not many days from now, some of you standing here will not die before you have seen the kingdom of God." And then Matthew goes on to say that uh, it was just, I think, six days after that, that Jesus took several of them, Peter, James, and John, up to a high mountain. That mountain, if you look at this map right here, geographically, they were at Caesarea Philippi. The high mountain that was right beside them was Mount Hermon. And on Mount Hermon, very likely, uh, was the, the mountain of the Transfiguration. Now, the Transfiguration... I'll stop uh, showing you the map here. The Transfiguration was that wonderful experience where, where they got to see, got a, a peek at the glory that they wanted Jesus to experience immediately, the glory of Christ and his kingdom they got to see on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus was there talking with uh, Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us that what they were talking about was Jesus' departure in Jerusalem. Now, let's put on your thinking caps and let's do some uh, theological connections here. Uh, you keep your finger here in Psalm 133 and turn back to Psalm 68. So, keep your finger there in Psalm 133, turn back to Psalm 68. David wrote both of these psalms. He wrote Psalm 133 and he wrote Psalm 68. And in both of these psalms, he refers to Mount Hermon and to Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. 
and he makes an interesting connection. Psalm 68, look down at verse 15. Psalm 68, 15 says this, A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. Now, our text doesn't tell us here, but this is probably Mount Hermon. Bashan was the mountain range up there in that area of the Golan Heights, and Mount Hermon is the mountain. So when it says, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan, a mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Now that's speaking of a different mountain. That's Mount Zion, or Jerusalem. So, to back up and get a big sense of what David's asking here, it says, up in Bashan there are many mountains, but there is the mountain. There's Mount Hermon. But then he says, Mount Hermon, why do you look with envy on little Jerusalem? Why do you look with envy at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? And he goes on, surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now that last verse there, verse 18, I hope you have a cross-reference to that in your margin that points you to Ephesians chapter 4, because Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18 as a fulfillment of Jesus' ascension into heaven. So again, take a big picture here with your thinking cap on. In both of these Psalms, 133 and 68, David is talking about Mount Hermon, Mount Zion, and here in Psalm 68, he talks about Mount Hermon envying Mount Zion, or Jerusalem. And then he uses this verse here, which Paul assigns to Jesus' ascension. When Jesus was on Mount Hermon, or on a Mount, a Mount of Transfiguration, what was he talking about with Moses and Elijah? The text says, Luke tells us, that he was talking about his departure, which would include his ascension. Interesting connection, isn't it? That Psalm 68 refers to the ascension, that, that, uh, uh, that Paul quotes it in reference to the ascension, and the conversation of Jesus with Moses and Elijah on Mount Hermon was the ascension. Well, anyway, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is where Paul quotes that in Luke 9.31, if you want those, uh, want those references. So look back now to Psalm 133. Let's look at verse 3 one more time. Psalm 133, verse 3. I'll read it again. It says, That unity, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. When David writes that there the Lord commanded the blessing, He's, he's probably remembering the blessing, particularly in reference to God's promise to David. God's promise to David is that the Messiah would come from, from his line and that uh, ultimately he would rule in Jerusalem on David's throne over a kingdom that is eternal. And so for God's people to come together and to have to be reminded 
uh, every several times a year of these essential themes would have been a great source of hope for them, that we are looking forward to not only the unity together, but the ultimate unity in the kingdom of God when the Messiah reigns on earth. This would have been a great encouragement. And notice the, uh, the progression in both of these illustrations. The oil starts at the head and works its way down to the edges. In fact, the phrase is used, coming down, coming down. And then the water starts at Mount Hermon, the highest place, and then works its way down, uh, metaphorically, to Zion. And again, it's coming down. The phrase is used again, coming down. Several times this phrase is used. And it shows that the direction of blessing, whether it's oil, whether it's water, but ultimately both of those point to the fact that it comes down from God. The Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. That unity is ultimately a blessing that God gives us. And it's a blessing that, um, that we desperately need. Now, Psalm 133 does a great job of telling us how great it is and what unity is like though it doesn't tell us how to get it. So let's look at a couple of other places. Turn with me to John 17, and let's look, about, look at what it takes to have unity. Uh, John 17, these, this is the, uh, the high priestly prayer. Sometimes it's referred to as uh, Jesus Christ the night before he is crucified. This is the night that he is betrayed. And he is uh, in Gethsemane, or he's on his way to Gethsemane, and he prays this. In John 17, look all the way down to verse 21. I'm going to read the uh, the New International Version here. It says, Jesus prays that all of them might or may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Here's another great implication of the blessings. When we are unified, it is an illustration. It is a testimony to the world, they get to see something that, uh, that they don't usually see. When they see that we're loving one another, um, they see something that they don't see in their circles. In their circles, it's all backbiting and dog-eat-dog and what's in it for me. But in, ideally, in the church, among Christians, there's a servant, the servant's hearts. There is a unity that goes far beyond our, our petty preferences. And, but let me tell you what unity isn't in the church. Unity isn't that we all become the same. And unity isn't that we all just sort of uh, get along and brush our different, all differences aside, especially differences in doctrine. We don't have unity in sacrifice truth. You, you could never imagine that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the unity that they share, that they would ever compromise on the deity of Christ, or they would ever compromise on uh, Jesus as the one who died to pay for the sins of the world. There are some essentials that, that you have to have to be called an Orthodox Christian. 
And so, Christ's prayer for unity is not unity at all costs. It's not unity uh, with the sacrifice of truth. There are some assumptions that we're going to believe the basics, like the inerrancy of the Scripture, the deity of Christ, salvation uh, by grace through faith alone. These are non-negotiables. But once we come together on these basics, then all of a sudden, it doesn't really matter which way the toilet paper rolls in your house. It doesn't really matter if we have an organ in the church or not. Now, I know that that's, that's tender ground for a lot of people, and it really is, isn't it? But it's our traditions. It's not necessarily in the Scripture. The Apostle Paul didn't have, uh, didn't have an organ. Uh, nothing wrong with an organ. Uh, I love listening to, the, to our organ. But, uh, but it's not an essential, and it's not a cause for disunity. These are just a couple of examples, whether it's the, the toilet paper in your home and how it rolls, or whether it's we have organs at church, or any of the other little things that, that go against uh, unity without sacrificing truth and solid doctrine. On the other hand, sometimes it's really helpful to be around people that don't worship exactly the way you do. It's helpful for those of us in a Bible church context to be around charismatics because we get a hint, we get to see a little preview, probably more of what heaven's going to be like in worship than, uh, than we do when we have our arms folded, our hands in our pockets. There is, uh, there's great benefit to that because it causes us to be humble. If you go on a mission trip and you go to another culture, all of a sudden you're exposed to different means of worship different expressions of love for God that are far different than our uh, Bible Belt evangelical Christianity. It's very different. And yet they're saved, just like we are. There is an essential humility that's required in these kind of coming together. And uh, it's essential for us to experience that. I remember when we went to those Promise Keeper uh, events. You remember those Promise Keeper events, men? where we go to Texas Stadium or uh, up in Denton at Fouts Field. They had one there as well. And I remember thinking, looking around that, that stadium and all the different denominations. They didn't, they didn't seat all the Southern Baptists over there and all the Charismatics way over there. And of course, uh, those from the Bible churches got to sit right up front. No, we were all intermingled. And it was great. You got to experience the same Lord through a variety of expressions, and it was very healthy because it caused humility. It caused unity. We, uh, unity comes, together, comes when we compromise our preferences, but not our convictions. And that's the first application. Unity comes when we compromise our preferences, but not our convictions. We don't sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. But there is so much we can sacrifice in order to have unity. Uh, Paul said it this way in Ephesians 4. Interesting, the same chapter that, uh, in verse 29, is the same chapter where he quoted about Jesus' ascension from Psalm 68. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.29, he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, 
rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Convicting, and it's compelling. One of the most compelling reasons to dwell together in unity is to realize the grace that God has extended to us, to each one of us. Christ has forgiven all of our sins when we have trusted in Him. His death on the cross is sufficient to pay for that, and His death on the cross is sufficient to pay for the sin that whoever it is committed against you. So here's the second principle. The first principle was unity comes when we compromise our preferences, but not our convictions. The second principle is that unity comes when we forgive others' offenses, remembering God does the same with us. Unity comes when we forgive others' offenses, remembering that God does the same with us. So we've seen, as we've looked through Psalm 133 and a couple of other of these passages, Jesus taught us that unity comes when we compromise our preferences, not our convictions. Paul taught us that unity comes when we forgive others' offenses, remembering that God does the same for us. And David, back in Psalm 133, gave us those wonderful observations that unity is like oil and that everyone enjoys its benefits. It runs down over the whole body. Uh, Unity is like water. It refreshes everyone. It's like a a water in a dry place. And finally, it's like Mount Zion. It's like uh, water coming down on Mount Zion or Jerusalem where God commanded the blessing of eternal life. David had said that unity is good and it's pleasant. As we've seen just this large context of what unity is, can't we amen that truth that unity is good and it's pleasant? Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful to you for the reminder of these essential truths, just as the Hebrews would ascend every year several times a year, and be reminded how good it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. As they would come together, they'd be reminded that unity is a high calling, and it is a priority, and from a New Testament perspective, it's a command that we forgive one another, that we love one another, and we are a testimony to the world when we do that. And we're a lot easier to be with, and life is just so much more fun. Give us the grace, Lord God, to set aside our preferences in view of others. Give us the grace to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. And we pray that somehow through the unity that we express to one another and that we display to the world, that people would see the unique people we are and ultimately would trust in our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.